Tribeca, right next to the narrow, but I'll be hood forever. I'm the new Sinatra, and since I made it here, I can make it anywhere. Yeah, they love me everywhere. I used to cop in Harlem, all of my Dominicanos right there up on Broadway. Pull me back to that McDonald's, took it to my stash spot, 560 State Street. Catch me in the kitchen like a Simmons whipping pastry. Cruising down A Street, off-white Lexus, driving so slow, but BK is from Texas. Me, I'm out there bed stop, home of that boy Biggie. Now I live on Billboard, and I brought my boys with me. Say what up to Tata, still sipping my ties. Sitting courtside, Knicks and Nets give me high five. Nigga, I be spiked out, I could trip a referee. Tell by my attitude that I most definitely from... This is Greenhorns Radio, and this is your host, Severin. I'm coming to you today from the Chicago Institute for Art, Art Institute, and I'm joined on the line in the Hudson Valley by Ben Shute, and he is the lead farmer uh, in partnership with Miriam of Hardy Roots Farm. Ben, are you there? Hi, Severin. Hi. Thank you so much for coming on. Glad to be on. Um, let's let's introduce you a little bit, who you are and where you're coming from and, and what you're growing. So I run Hardy Roots Farm. We are in Tivoli, New York. That is uh, 90 miles north of New York City in the mid-Hudson Valley, right on the eastern bank of the Hudson River in New York. And we are a CSA farm mostly. We grow CSA shares for members here in Tivoli and also in the Hudson Valley for the cities of Woodstock and Kingston, and then down in New York City and Brooklyn, we do a few neighborhood CSA sites down there. So how many shares in total and um, are you growing for? So this year we are growing 440 shares per week, and then um, also this year we're doing some kind of institutional-sized shares um, through Just Food, the nonprofit in New York City. Um, and we're delivering 900 pounds a week of food to um, be distributed. So, by, what did it take to get to that number? That's a lot of people that you're feeding. How how did that? How did you scale up in terms of the numbers? Well, it definitely started really small. It started with 30 members um, six years ago, and that was just on the farm. Those members coming coming to our uh, three quarters of an acre that we started with. Um, and we've, the whole time we've rented land, and so that's been part of our scaling up process is that we never um, start, you know, we never had ownership of land um, so far. And so we were able to start real small and not have, you know, crazy costs of like a, a big mortgage or something like that. Um, and we were able to kind of scrape together enough rented land that we could grow every year. And we did. And so every year we've gone up. So we started with 30 members and went to, 75 and went to 150 and 225 and 310 and now 440. And now you're you're continuing to grow or you're going to level off or what's the So right now we're kind of leveling off um, and that's mostly well at least for now we are and that's mostly because of 
um, our land situation, being that the property we've been renting on, um, we're kind of maxed out in terms of what is available to us there. And actually, we, we rent from two different landlords, and um, one of those two uh, farms is actually for sale, and uh, for sale for quite a lot of money, so um, we're not going to be on that property anymore. And fortunately, that property, we just had a couple acres and vegetables on that property. It, it mostly wasn't so good for vegetables. Um, so now we're, we're moving exclusively to one site, which will be a little bit easier in terms of some logistics, um, not running back and forth down the road to our different fields. But it's requiring us not really to, to expand too much more as a farm for now until we get maybe some more land from at that site or until we possibly would move to some other land and hopefully move to some long-term land that would be available to us for the long-term future, not just on a five-year lease, which is what we have right now um, on our current property. And what would it look like? Like, what would your dream land tenure and farm um, layout be like? Well, I mean, I, I definitely don't feel super strongly that we would um, own our land in, in, in whatever scenario we end up with, um, especially in this area of the Hudson Valley. Land is very, very expensive, and it's very difficult to come up with enough money to buy land here using just, you know, um, revenue from, from doing vegetables. And, you know, vegetables is, you know, probably one of the, the highest revenue per acre crops you can do. So, um, you know, g given that that it's unaffordable to buy land with that revenue. It's, it says something about what the land use patterns are here in our area. Um, you know, there's a lot of second homeowners coming up from New York City. There's a lot of people kind of looking for their Hudson Valley estate, um, and they're willing to pay more for land, even if that land is, uh, like, preserved in terms of having a open space easement on it, um, even in, in that situation, the land is still really more expensive than a farmer can afford to pay. So um, so our, our kind of dream scenario doesn't really involve ownership just because that's not necessarily very realistic if we want to stay right here. Um, and we like being here, um, partly because a lot of our customers are right here and, and also in New York City, which is just a couple hours away. Um, so really our, our, our dream um, land tenure situation would have to involve some kind of third party. Um, ideally, a land trust or a community land trust that might partner with us um, and either actually be the owner of a piece of land and lease it to us on a really long-term basis. Um, and there, there are a bunch of, uh, of other farms, especially some community-supported agriculture farms that have followed that model and had, had success with that. Um, or possibly um, partner with our town or with another uh, nonprofit organization that might want to be involved in securing land for us um, and either offsetting some of the, the cost, um, basically the, some of the cost that's the difference between the agricultural value of a piece of land and the, I guess, estate value of a piece of land, the amount that it might sell to someone who is looking for a second home or a big estate. Um, and, uh, and so there, there's a few different arrangements that, I've seen that I, I would be pretty happy with in terms of how that could, could look. Um, and one thing that a lot of them have in common is that there's some um, degree of ownership for the farmer. It's, it's not purely that we're 
going to be leaseholders for our whole life. Um, so an example of that is a farmer being able to kind of build up equity by owning some of the improvements on the land. Um, that would be, uh, you know, a house or barns or uh, greenhouses or other kind of tangible improvements to the land would be owned by the farmer. And then, let's say, you know, my farm, when I got to be an old man and didn't want to farm anymore, I could theoretically sell that to another farmer um, who would be able to afford the land because it would be uh, not my land to, to jack up the price on. It would be owned by a land trust. But I could, you know, um, sell my business or my barns or things like that and kind of have, have that security in the future. Or um, the other thing is I could potentially pass along that land um, and that lease to um, someone in my family who wanted to farm it. So that's kind of another important um, condition of a arrangement like that with a land trust, a long-term uh, inheritable lease. It's very interesting that here in this valley, which is essentially the headwaters of the capital of capitalism, would and is so close to such a lucrative market, New York City, with so many hungry mouths to feed and so many restaurants and um, stuff you could feed also in very good prices. It's still in some way a frontier um, in terms of this interesting irony of, of land access for, farm, for, for producing farmers. And you seem to have been in that frontier and really learning a lot about how to um, manage those logistics. Where have you where have you been learning these things? Like, what's your how did you find all this out about these community land trust models and other ways of um, dealing with that unfortunate um, problem of, of of land access? Yeah, there's there's been a few different ways that I've been able to learn about um, those those various things, um, and one has just been from other farmers who have been in been in our position. Uh, Roxbury Farm in Columbia County, just north of us, is an example. They've partnered with land trusts to secure a, you know, 99-year inheritable lease on their property. Um, there's other farms on the West Coast, and I think in, in Massachusetts that have a very similar arrangement. Um, and so, you know, given our situation, I've been I had my ears wide open for um, other farmers who have solved those problems um, through one way or another. Um, but also, uh, I, I've been fortunate um, so far to, to be in a town, uh, the town of Red Hook, New York, that has actually been lately pretty proactive about trying to come up with ways to preserve farmland. Um, about, I guess it was several years ago, maybe uh, six or seven years ago, um, our town uh, put up a, a bond act locally. You know, our town's about 11,000 people. Um, to put aside three and a half million dollars in taxpayer money, you know, coming out of property taxes, um, to purchase development rights on farmland in our town, and I mean, it's hard enough to get a you know school budget passed in a town or anything like that without causing a total ruckus. So for you know the eleven thousand people in our town to voluntarily say yes, we want to put up put up three and a half million dollars because we appreciate having farms in our town is a pretty big deal. Um, and then a few years later, just a couple of years ago, kind of a follow-up um, piece of legislation went through our town that uh, put a tax on real estate transfers. So that's, you know, whenever someone buys a piece of land, buys a, buys a house, um, if the value of that transaction in our town right now is more than the median value, 
So let's say the average house sells for uh, $350,000 in our town. Um, any amount over that median value is taxed, and that money goes towards preserving farmland in our town. So let's say you bought a house for $450,000, and that's $100,000 over the median value in the town. Um, 2% of that $100,000 uh, goes into uh, a fund for the town to use to, to purchase development rights. Um, and so that's been really great to, to see that kind of activity right here in our town and that kind of support, too, from the voters in our town to, to pass those laws. The real problem with that right now is that purchasing development rights on a property doesn't guarantee that that property is going to be actively farmed um, or farmed to kind of its highest social value use. Um, so, you know, you can, you can have a town or a land trust purchase the development rights on a 100-acre farm that has really productive soils and a lot of potential for growing high-value crops. And that doesn't at all prevent someone from just buying it and treating that 100 acres of prime soils as a giant front lawn um, or, you know, or something in between, something like just paying someone locally to cut hay off of that. Um, you know, there, it's, it's important to have, you know, a diverse agricultural economy, but where we are within 100 miles of New York City, our prime soils really are best suited to doing vegetable production or fruit production um, or, you know, any kind of high-value perishable crops that can be delivered right to the city and not, you know, flown across the country from California. And so it's really a shame to see prime ag soils kind of underused in our town. And even though we're, we're being better about preserving farmland, we're, we haven't figured out um, how to make sure that that farmland is, is really used as an active working farm. And, of course, the other important thing about having a piece of farmland in our town used to kind of its highest agricultural use, you know, used for a high-value crop, is that that kind of use is what really creates a vibrant ag economy in our town. Um, you know, we, we farm about 25 acres. Um, it's more like we have like 18 in, in crops right now. And this summer that, you know, created uh, pretty much 10 full-time jobs in our town, and we were spending literally hundreds of thousands of dollars of revenue um, in our town on salaries, on supplies, on, you know, even the, the money that's being paid to our workers. They're buying groceries in our town. They're going to the bar in our town. They're, you know, um, really enriching our local economy. Um, that same... So we need vistas, but we also need vegetables. And that impact um, of, a, of an active farm isn't only a, a nutritional impact or a local food security impact. It's also an economic development impact that if you could imagine the proliferation of small, um, high-value crop farms in the valley, which I think there's market for, that would have um, a tremendous stabilizing effect, wouldn't you say, on, on the economy of the, of the valley? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, um, and, and, and it also kind of opens the door to a richer overall agricultural economy. Um, you know, w when we, like let's say that our, our uh, 20 acres of crops was just in hay, that would pretty much be one person's part-time job. Um, and most of that money would go towards paying down some 
you know, big fancy haying equipment. Not necessarily fancy, but, uh, you know, some <laughs> haying equipment. Um, and so, you know, you know, that money is not really sticking around the community. And also that farmer is not really um, kind of invigorating the local ag economy as much as, say, someone who's doing more intensive agriculture. Um, you know, we kind of, we keep, you know, we, we spend money at our Agway. You know, it's not the greatest store anymore, but it, it has some stuff for us. We spend money at the local tractor dealership and their parts counter and things like that. And we spend money at the local hardware store and lumber yard and things like that. And um, the more that is going on, the more hospitable our area is to other farmers because we have those services. We have the, the guys around who can help you fix your tractor and the parts counters that have a part on short notice when something is broken. Um, and so, you know, that, that enables more farming, which enables more farming and um, more ac economic activity, and then also opens up um, doors for, you know, it, obviously we don't want to have just, um, you know, high-value vegetable producers around here, and, and we have soils that aren't well-suited to that, and we need to have, you know, more grazing going on and things like that. But um, the more that we have those kind of high-value farms doing, creating a lot of agricultural economic activity, then the more support services there are for those other types of farming, too. So in a sense, you know, we look, if you look, I've just been um, taking a train across the country from Albany to Chicago and looked at a lot of old dairy barns um, whose roofs had fallen in and whose fences had been taken down and whose, um, whose functions as um, real economic foundation for that, for the region had disappeared. And so in a lot of places, including the Hudson Valley, the kind of basic building blocks of the agricultural economy have disappeared. And so you don't have then these amplifier effects that you're talking about. And it seems like, especially in our experience of um, in the young farming community in the Hudson Valley, your guys being there and having equipment and, and showing, showing off um, a land tenure situation, even if it doesn't have a forever um, as a future, showing off to other people how it's done and lending expertise and, um, and equipment really starts a chain reaction of growth and, um, and economic growth that I think is also um, modeled in other regions. But in our little valley, it's very clearly, um, it's a very clear little emergence yeah, and, what do and you I, want? To, what do you want to do next year that's different from this year? Um, next year, well, you know, we've for the so we're in our sixth season right now as a farm, and every year we've grown a lot um, oh. in terms of actual vegetables um, that we're producing and acreage and things, uh, crew size. Oh. And next year, because we're kind of limited in our land, it'll be a year of really kind of refining our systems, which is going to be, I think. Um, a, 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 it's a great time for us to, to be doing that and to kind of figure out, well, what can, you know, staying at the same size, how can we really make things run as smoothly as possible? Um, and this, this year, we, every year as, as we've kind of jumped up in size, I'd say we've hired um, probably like on the, on the generous side, uh, you know, in terms of, of a number of people in our crew, maybe a little bit more than we needed to do the work. Um, 
which has been great because it means that when things go wrong, we have plenty of folks around to get on whatever the, the project is that we're trying to do. So if we're trying to mechanically cultivate something, you know, with an implement that we've never used before and it's not really working out, then we can have everyone grab their um, wheel hose and jump out in the field and kind of take care of, of a, a crop that we had hoped to be able to do really efficiently with a tractor and it's not working out so well. So, you know, this, this year uh, in the coming season, hopefully we'll be able to refine some of that stuff and to learn from the small mistakes that we've made and the big mistakes that we've made. And um, one example that I've seen in the last uh, month has been as we've been digging up our potatoes, um, we never really grew potatoes too much in the last several seasons. We had a couple um, rows of potatoes our first couple of years, and it always kind of seemed like we had, were digging up fewer potatoes in the fall than we had actually planted in the spring. And uh, that wasn't really... That was after, you know, doing all this back-breaking preparation. And this year, also for the first time, um, your wife has been farming with you. Will you tell about her far about her farm? Yeah, so um, it's been really exciting because, well, I, I, um, Lindsay and I got married in uh, September of last year, and before that we were um, living separately in New York City and me up here, uh, Lindsay in New York City. And this year she was able to move up here uh, for most of the week. She, she still is down in New York City a couple of days a week for a job, but um, was able to piggyback onto our farm and to do her own um, farming project, Pistol Farm, and do flowers. So um, I think that's another kind of good example of the amplifier effects of having some, um, some strong, you know, youth farms and, and new farms and... Um, we had the equipment with like enough kind of spare hours that it could be, you know, that it wasn't being used, that we were able to plow up some extra ground for Lindsay to do some flowers and um, had some folks around who were able to take some time and help her out with that project. And then we were able to take those flowers down to New York City and do some deliveries um, to our CSA members of flower shares. And so that made our CSA members happy and um, allowed Lindsay to get a, far a flower farming project started without having to, you know, buy a truck or spend all that time driving down or buy a tractor. And in this time, in this, I hope I'm not interrupting you, but in this time um, when everyone's talking about tightening pocketbooks and um, less spending, do you feel like there has been a decline in demand for um, these uh, vegetables that you're growing and the flowers that um, Lindsay's growing and in general for local food, or do you see that to be a strong and stable marketplace for those products? Certainly in, in New York City, it seems like the demand for fresh and organic vegetables is just like completely underserved right now. Um, as far as, as I can tell, if we wanted to, you know, do orders of magnitude more in terms of CSA shares in the city, we, we wouldn't have much trouble doing that. Um, it's been a little trickier right in our local area, um, and we, in general, we, we've had no problem selling out shares by, just by word of mouth. Um, this year, it took took a little longer, and we we kind of had to juggle things around in order to to sell enough shares. Like we had to move some of our shares that we had planned on having in one site to another site. Um, so I'm not sure if that's a you know a result of us growing as a farm, or if that's a result of things. Um, not being as easy economically for people. Um, but in New York City, really, I, I 
can't imagine it being easier to sell CSA shares. It's, it's amazing how much demand there is there, and there's just not enough uh, local vegetable growers to supply it all. Um, so so if, if you were giving advice now to somebody who's either on the cusp of starting their own farm or in the very beginning, what, what kind of general guidance would you, would you give, like three little points? That um, from your from your experience, been doing this now for six seasons independently. What would be three top little bits of advice that you would give? Um, yeah, I think well, one is is just to make sure that you have done a you know good solid apprenticeship on another farm before you jump into it. You know, do a real full season's work so you get to see the whole process through and through. Um, I mean, ideally, you probably do several apprenticeships. Um, in my case, I just did really one full apprenticeship and worked here and there for some farms and then uh, kind of jumped into it with someone else who was in a similar situation. Um, and we definitely made a lot of mistakes in, in jumping into it like that, but they were not disastrous mistakes, and they were ones that we were able to learn from and recover from. So I guess that would be another little um, point of advice is, is don't be afraid to jump into it at a certain point. Don't feel like you have to, you know, do 10 years of apprenticeships and find some farm manager position before you can do your own thing. Um, you, can, you can make it work on your own um, and, and learn from it as you go if, if you feel... So like this has been Greenhorns Radio. I thank Ben so much for having joined us. Um, it's on every week on Thursday, and I'd like to make time now to just say you can go on the web and find Ben's farm at hardyroots.com. You can find our website at uh, www.thegreenhorn.net. Um, we've got a few events coming up on the blog that you can check out. The blog is www.thegreenhorn.wordpress.com. This show is sponsored this week and every week by Hearst Family Rent in California. We're so grateful that they do that. And if you're interested in animal, animal husbandry, um, as, well, as well as vegetable husbandry, then you may be interested to join us on October 31st. For the whole weekend, we have two-day-long pig butchery workshop at Snitterine Farm. Uh, information on that is available on the blog. Uh, it is an RSVP event, so please do go on and learn about the butchers and the pigs who will um, be, of course, the basic ingredients of that two-day-long uh, educational celebrational gathering. Thank you so much, Ben. Thank you so much to our listeners, um, and have a, good, have a good week. Bye. Yeah. Yeah, I'm out at Brooklyn, now I'm down in Tribeca, right next to the Nero, but I'll be hood forever. I'm the new Sinatra.